Well, I want to thank you, uh, David, for that gracious introduction, and I want to thank all of you for coming, and I want to thank Mockingbird Ministries, this new creation that has been given to us, and David and Sean Norris. Where is Sean Norris? I, there you are. <laughs> don't know you as well. And um, Calvary St. George, and probably a host of angels. Um, maybe in more than one sense, there's a host of angels out there uh, with us today, and making it possible for me to. Uh, uh, doesn't that mean somebody puts on a Broadway show? <laughs> Nobody laughed. Uh, <laughs> maybe I have it wrong. I just met those who are supporting uh, this remarkable ministry as it takes wings. The privilege of coming here is very great because the entire conference is, is about what life is all in all to me, and that is about grace and personal relationships. And my contribution here, I'm going to get to that title in a minute because it does come out of Manhattan uh, Psychiatric Institute. Uh, if I forget to give you the title, remind me and I will come back. But my role here, I think, and I think I was invited because my contribution has to do uh, with the nature of nurturing love. I suppose that all of you, oh, I can see, uh, I suppose that all of you here are in some way or another engaged in some form of mentoring, either with a, a flock, a pastor, or a teacher, a parent, uh, or as um, perhaps just being engaged in the nurturing part of an intimate relationship. Uh, that is, uh, I think, a particular art form. I, that phrase occurred to me last night, and it struck me by surprise. And I thought, art form, intimate relationships. I think not an accident, and I think um, it came to me unsummoned in. And... Uh, David and others, those of you who have read my book, will recognize that that comes from Emily Dickinson. And I'm going to avoid uh, getting off into Dickinson insofar as I can. And <laughs> um, it won't, uh, the trouble is, if I get started, it has no end. So I'm not really here to speak about Dickinson, though she did have, I'll give her this tribute. She. <laughs> She did have quite an influence on that book, as those of you who have waded through it um, may uh, have observed. I want to go right to the nature, as I understand it, of nurturing love. I think this is not new to anybody uh, in this church, and especially at this conference. I've been looking at what you've done already at this conference, and I hope I have something new to offer to what already has been going on, the, uh, because I believe it's all in the same theme. The nature of nurturing love. 
is to me authentic and effectual to the degree to which it transcends the commonly assumed principle of this for that or a circular exchange. That is such a commonly assumed principle in the world that it's hard for us to imagine how we could do without intimate relationships having an element of this for that, this kind of circular exchange. We'll be using that word. We have a, um, a radically, uh, uh, well, it's a radical idea. and. For many of us, we don't know how we could manage things at all without saying, if you do that, I will do this. And if, uh, if you don't do that, I'm going to do this. And if, ifs are very common among us. But the kind of love, and I can work that title in now, uh, that we're talking about that is not based on an exchange of this for that is what the title, what led to the title, the new recipe, because having had a therapeutic relationship at Manhattan uh, Psychiatric Center for very, very angry and troubled children, uh, the little girl who had, um, oh, I have to describe her for a moment. She was a terror. I, I couldn't, I was doing, trying to do, I was a brand new psychotherapist, and trying to do therapy with her was something like trying to do therapy with a hornet. I was quite taken aback, and um, she was so filled with, I don't know if any of you have ever seen anything like it, she was so filled with rage for the unrelenting punishment and emotional poverty of her family. Uh, that the rage could scarcely be contained. Of course, it was my job to help her contain it. But after a while in our doing uh, some play work together with the little dolls and the dough and things that children do when they first go into play therapy, and she was having a tea party for her dolls with the little play dough that I make for the children. And she said, Thoughtfully, this is a new recipe. My dolls have not had it before. And I was struck with the profundity of that remark. Indeed, it was a new recipe for her. And while it's a very old recipe, as all of us in the church know, it is new to most of us in our ordinary dealings with our, those right around us and those a little further from us in the daily world. Now, I know that the daily world uh, has to operate on a, on a principle of the world outside, has to operate on a principle of this for that. Uh, we have to... We have to pay for what we buy. We have to earn our salaries. And uh, some people have their children earn their allowances. And we understand that that's the way the world works and the outside world of time works. 
What we're talking about is something else. I have to insert a, a wonderful piece, not from Dickinson, but from Melville, um, who had his character Ishmael say, if any of you remember me reading um, Moby Dick, if I stood over here and just yelled this way, would that be all right? Is that okay? That's very distracting to me. Um, he had his, Melville had his character Ishmael say that the reason he went to sea as a sailor and not as a passenger was that passengers have to pay. And he said, now paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable infliction that those two orchard thieves entailed upon us. Now we'll pause and see who wants to tell us who the orchard thieves are. Adam and Eve. <laughs> we, yes, are entailed with this business of paying. Uh, and we expect to pay. Uh, we expect to earn our grades and our money. But what we're talking about here uh, is the justice model of this for that, we pay for this and we get that, is utterly transcended by another reality altogether where there is something that cannot be earned, cannot be bought. And this, this principle, while we can take it in when we're in the church, it escapes very quickly from us when we're with our children or others. Well, if you would just do so-and-so, I, I would do so-and-so. Watch out for that if discipline. I know there are parents here. Watch out for the ifs. Whatever you do, come at it unconditionally. I'm going to help you with this. That isn't good for you. It's an entirely different thing from if you do that again, you're going to get grounded. The um, uh, that's, I hope, the only commercial of that sort, but there might be others. The, um, how to get to this? Well, the way I got to it was about several decades ago in a sermon at Union Seminary by Edmund Steinle, who taught homiletics there. I suppose none of you were born when he was around teaching. Uh, preached a sermon about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And I never forgot it, and it changed my life and my way of thinking, and I think that's probably what has come to the fruition it has here today. You will recall, I'm sure you will recall that, that those workers who were hired to work in the vineyard. Some came early in the morning. Some came at noon. Some came late in the day when there were very few hours left to work. And when the paying part came, uh, the Lord of the vineyard paid them all the same. And you can imagine the hue and outcry of injustice and unfairness and uh, what was this. And uh, we have many theologians here who um, could probably just tell us in one sentence what that parable is about. 
Nobody? Oh, come on. <laughs> that parable is about what the New Testament is about. It's about that which cannot be earned. And merit and credit, in the sense of getting credit for things, goes all together out the window. The, uh, since I happen to live with a biblical scholar, I have been in on the inside of this a few times. And he, uh, I remember being surprised that what it had to do with that, I guess it's in the text, perhaps someone can tell me, that the Lord of the vineyard had the freedom to, to do what he would with what he had. And it was not governed by rules of fairness or justice. And that idea that there's something that could transcend and transform uh, a circular exchange, that there wouldn't be anymore, that uh, Jesus Christ was the end of merit. It's a very strong statement, but I believe it to be true. But something else that transcends it. Now, nurturing love has that as its one of its main qualities. Now, all of us know that um, that kind of love is not invented by human beings. It, uh, it comes to us from God, and it has certain qualities. Uh, I have to check my time here because sometimes I, um, I'm not going to let an alarm go off. I hope. <laughs> The qualities of that kind of love actually are very particular qualities. This material, by the way, um, is not original with me at all. It comes from primarily from Karl Barth and his um, Perfections of the Divine Loving, in which he describes the qualities of God's love. And on that basis of that is where we get our guide of how to love each other. And the three qualities that um, I'm going to speak about, I translated these into a, a kind of a non-theological language. Uh, but we will know, of course, the theological terms that go with them. The first quality is a givenness. It is conditionless. It just comes unsummoned. It's, um, it comes first. It is not contingent on what somebody is doing. It is what we call, what this conference is about. That is the nature of grace. It comes first. It does not wait for anybody to deserve it. I'm going to restrict my illustrations of this, I think, to the um, last, or maybe two qualities. The second one of Bart's points is the quality of love that enters in to another person's need or suffering. It stands with that person and not over against. There is a story I have to tell about this. I can't help it. I'll try to keep it brief. 
The one that strikes me as most important, I had a few to choose from. We call this in the church, or Bart does, the quality of mercy. That has to do with entering in to the other person's situation and suffering. Uh, I give myself five minutes to tell you about Susie. Of course, that's a pen name. Susie was not in that hospital. she was a well-brought-up child of professional parents, and um, she had a terrible sleep problem. I was trying to think about how old she was when I knew her, maybe maybe five or six, possibly six. Um, she didn't want to stay in her own bed at night, and she would get up all hours of the night and come get in bed with her parents. And uh, the parents, who were knowledgeable and read all the books about child-rearing, tried all of those things that the professionals suggested about how to get children to sleep in their own bed and stop pestering you in the middle of the night. But (laughs) none of these um, gimmicks worked with this child. And she had other symptoms, too. She called her mother terrible names, um, like, you little wretch. Are you worm? And uh, this was not a reflection. I knew the mother. This was not a reflection of um, of what that child well, could be an easy assumption. Well, that's the way she's been treated. That's not the case. This came from somewhere deep inside the little girl that it took us a little time to understand. As the story uh, unfolded, we had decided that the mother and the little girl and I would spend some time in the playroom together. Not that that means it was the mother's fault, but that it usually, uh, in, when the child is having some sort of trouble, it usually involves the parent of the same sex more directly. I don't know if any of you would. Uh, it often does. It, the parent of the same sex is off. So the mother and the little girl and I watched her play, which took on some most interesting forms. We had the Barbie dolls there, and the Barbie dolls had a party. And uh, we each had a Barbie doll. One belonged to the mother, and one belonged to me, and one belonged to her. So they were at a party, and the little girl said, well, you're, uh, you're, you can't come to this party, she said to one of the dolls. I think it was her mother's doll. It quickly became mine. Uh, you're sick, and you have to stay in bed, and I hope you don't get any better. And uh, from there, it became much more violent. Um, It seems that the, uh, uh, what would be a good word for what was aimed at these um, these bad uh, objects? Uh, The word might come. At any rate, these these dolls were in for a rough ride. One, (laughs) uh, it became... uh, it came to pass, so to speak, that uh, one little girl was told that her doll had to be attacked with harpoons and spears, and the other dolls had to do it, indeed unto death. And not just unto death, but as a final kind of insult, uh, this poor dead Barbie doll was... Uh, Bugs were put all over the body of this dead Barbie doll. And um, uh, an ordinary person looking at this would think, what on earth is the matter with this child? Does she have some 
terrible disease because should we diagnose this? Well, I want you to know that having spent 30 years doing play therapy, I have seen cannibalism and dismemberment, uh, and <laughs> the, out of the most, uh, come out of the play of the most normal little children. It seems to be a part of the human condition. <laughs> That it's in us all. Well, I, five minutes may be up. The, the, the story, uh, got more and more interesting. It, it, it became very clear that the daughter had a rage at the mother for possessing something that she herself wanted, namely the father. Now this may sound old, Broyden, and very outmoded to some of you. But this was the way children played this out. When there was this kind of a crime against a parent, the murderer had to go through terrible, terrible punishments. And this little girl was extremely confident in um, constellating the murderer and the punishment by casting a scene where her mother was the murderer and had to die in an electric chair. So the mother was, I had clued her in uh, that this, this was, these were not horrible things. We were just trying to find out what the underneath stuff was. So the mother very, that's the reason I put this under mercy. The mother had mercy for this child. She entered in to this play and always being the bad guy and getting electrocuted. That little girl, <laughs> the little girl found a very, uh, <clears throat> oh, did I ruin it? Is it all right? Uh, that's better if you can hear. Can you hear now? Oh, that's much better. The, um, well, she devised a scene which she played over and over where she rigged an electric chair. The mother was put in the electric chair and there was an old fashioned apartment where there were still servant bells on the, um, um, so she found that she could, uh, push the servant's electric bell. It didn't really have a bell. And uh, that would be the discharge of electricity, at which point her mother was supposed to fall dead. Uh, now, <laughs> this, I see all of you are quite shocked. But uh, these, you know those children who space out at school? Don't be too sure that where they're spacing out. See, children showed me over years where they space out to. They are busy thinking about much more important issues than what the teacher has in mind for them. And uh, they, I, with all due respect to current diagnosis, um, their attention span to things that were important to them was unlimited. Um, I tell this story mainly because of the power of the mercy. It, it was uh, uh, astounding to both parents that with this kind of allowance to play and just have it watched and understood and reflected, uh, the little girl started to sleep better. She just had to get it all out. It had to be externalized. The, um, now, that's the one example of mercy. I thought it was a beautiful example of mercy. The mother and the father entered in to this child's suffering instead of of trying to um, manipulate it away, the behavior away, and the symptoms uh, got better. I don't mean that the little girl was uh, forever saved according to uh, this world's standards, but that problem uh, did go away. The last one of these qualities is patience. I don't mean patience in the sense that most of us mean it when we mean our fortitude in standing up to other people's um, uh, 
uh, misdeeds and um, <laughs> wrongdoing. We often think I'm very patient if I put up with uh, what's being meted out to me right now. Uh, patience in the sense, and I got this from Karl Barth, and it came down actually through the uh, mentoring, nurturing um, ministry of Professor Christopher Morris of Union Seminary. Uh, I think if I learned anything else at Union Seminary, I learned nothing as well as this, was the perfections of the divine loving. And patience means is the sustaining and accompanying the other uh, without coercion until the latent design of that child can emerge in freedom. That is, freedom to become its true self. I'm not talking about license, uh, freedom in the sense of anything goes. I want quickly to dispel any ideas that I preach permissiveness. Of course, a child is under the worst sort of tyranny if abandoned to his or her own impulses without any kind of restraint. A child is very grateful uh, to have uh, somebody bigger to help with all of, all of the stuff inside that they cannot handle. But that doesn't mean that a child's basic integrity has to be manipulated or formed or created or pushed into being by, um, by a parent uh, or a teacher. I will, if anybody wants to ask questions about uh, permissiveness and what does it mean to come through forcefully for a child against an action, knowing that the action is the child's enemy too, uh, that is not giving the child license. That's giving the child freedom because he knows the parent is there to help with the impulses that can't be managed. I will give one brief uh, illustration about that one. And it was, well, it could have been that little girl in the hospital, but it was one very similar who was so full of rage. Uh, I helped her over a period of years to contain her rage uh, by simply holding her and saying, no, that isn't good for you. And that is when she was trying to tear the books off the bookshelves. And um, it, it was a little much to be taking on in a, uh, the uh, halls of Union Seminary. But we, she later thanked me. No, no, she didn't thank me exactly. She said, uh, it's an interesting slip. She said... But she did in a way, uh, after she had internalized some of the controls that I had had for her while she had none, and I would hold her and say, you can't do that, it isn't good for you. Um, and holding her sometimes was not so easy. She told me one day, after she had come some ways uh, toward... Um, internalizing these controls, she said, let's pretend that I'm tearing the books off the bookshelf and trying to run into your kitchen, and you catch me, and you don't let me do it. Now, that is what I mean by the power of, um, of this kind of love that does not base itself on what you deserve. The uh, 
miracle of it all, I know a lot more things I could have said, but the miracle of it all is uh, what I recently read about in a book of prayer I love, and if any of you are interested, I can tell you about it later. It speaks of the miracles of eternity that are made in the course of the simple circumstances of everyday life. That one of, one of his phrases was, uh, the man who wrote the prayer was, we live in a world of time, uh, enfolded by a world of time, and uh, now and then, the splendor of eternity simply breaks in. Now, these simple victories of the power of love uh, are not so simple after all. They are really miracles of eternity. That's what we mean, I think, when we pray Sunday after Sunday, Thy kingdom come. I was taught by some learned person, can't remember which now, there have been many, that that kingdom means the kingdom of love, where love and mercy and patience and kindness and joy, where those things come to us and they break into the common, uh, to our common days. And I think that's what it means uh, when... Uh, I know. It, well, that was also Christopher Morris because he's writing a book on heaven and it should be out soon. And don't any of you miss it because it's about how heaven comes to us. And when we say thy kingdom come and give us this day our daily bread, I think it's the coming of those moments of this kind of, of love. It's those miracles that come from those kind of love in their own simple garb. That is what it means for thy kingdom to come. And that is our daily bread. And for that, we give thanks. Wow, thank you, Dorothy. We're going to be taking questions here for a little while. So. Yeah, I don't have to stand here, do I? Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> but actually, yeah, let's give you this chair. Question, comment, thought? I had a question for all of you. I understood that this morning, one of, some of you were in a group that talked about grace in cases. Is this working? Um, grace uh, in the presence of addiction. And I, I want to know what you learned there because I wanted to, I had wanted to ask that as a challenge to all of us. Suppose you have, as we just very recently heard of a friend whose daughter is, 17-year-old daughter is on heroin. And um, how would you apply this paradigm of no circular exchange, but simply parental love. What did you come up with this morning? I want to hear about it. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Somebody else then. Just, uh, All right. just give her the...
Very briefly, I think a way to approach it from my own experience is, um, oh, sorry. Here I am again. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be able to say something. Um, in a way that's not uh, conditional would be to recognize that the symptoms of heroin addiction or whatever compulsive behavior uh, are an, a symptom of an underlying pain, underlying um, turmoil, and that's what it's indicating. And so to approach someone who is caught in compulsive behavior, sharing, you know, that I am uh, concerned about um, the, the self-talk. I'm concerned about the, the pain underneath the symptom. It's a red flare. It's an alarm going off. And uh, I want to come alongside you and support you in finding a safe place in order to feel, to have that exposed and to feel that and to face what is driving those compulsions. Um, and in light of the cross, we have safety knowing that God knows ahead of time that we have problems, <laughs> very deep, dark problems, and that they are forgiven already. That gives us the permission to face them. Um, that's sort of what I learned. Are there any... Thank you, Kate. Are there any questions for, for Dorothy? Hi, Dorothy. Thanks so much for an incredible presentation. Um, how would you propose that we unlearn this cyclical reciprocity dynamic that you observe in, that, that we pick up in childhood? How, you know, we, we do it every day, like you said. We earn our wages. We, um, if someone gives something to us, we feel obliged to give something back to them. How do we unlearn this dynamic? Does anybody have a thought about that? Uh, we want to hear your thought. <laughs> How do we unlearn it? I think partly we unlearn it uh, to the extent we can learn a little at a time, slowly. When we are given something like that, the power of it, of, of something... Of, uh, is there anybody here who has not known a powerful moment, either with your intimate partner or, or with a teacher or a parent or a boss or who simply comes with something free and gives it to you when, to use the phrase in the book, you least deserve it. Uh, if we were talking about deserving, the power of it, uh, of the power of that inbreaking of something from somewhere else. I heard of a couple once who um, were having a terrible log jam, and all of you know what they are about, where both parties are, both partners are feeling simultaneously like a, a bad, disappointing child in the eyes of the other one, while being ex uh, experienced as a terrible witch of a, uh, of, of a parent at the same time. You got that triple log jam, you have a mess. Um, if any of you have been intimate partners with somebody more than a few months, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, the, but I heard of a couple who had been having a terrible log jam, and uh, I never forgot the power of what one of them was given to do. I think we're given to do it when we're... Uh, said to the other one, well, after, after the week you've had, 
This was the last thing you needed. And what would you call that? It was certainly mercy, you know, to enter in, to, and it just dissolved the entire logjam because it came from somewhere else. I'm sure the examples of, uh, is this thing coming through? Okay. Uh, some out there, this is a discussion now, because I was invited into a discussion. And by the way, the one who spoke about the heroin, I think that was a very helpful comment. Of course, it means that there's trouble underneath. But at the same time, and I, I guess I asked one question and now I'm asking another. Uh, but I'll forget this if I don't get it now. But what do you tell the parent to do to... <laughs> to uh, this is a terrible beast after this child. Uh, it's, it's like the child is being chased by a bear, resents the father's interference, uh, uh, hates her parents right now. What do they do? I mean, <laughs> uh, that is non-conditional. Could you speak to that? You seem to be very knowledgeable about it. Does anybody else have any thoughts that they'd like to share? Okay. Um, hi, I'm Shelley West. And, um, Would you stand up so that Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've spent a little bit of time um, in Al-Anon, which uh -huh. is the Alcoholics Anonymous program for family members of addicts. And... Um, my, my experience in that is that when trying to love an addict, which is a very, very hard thing to do, it becomes almost impossible not to make it about yourself and trying to save them. And um, I was in a relationship with one myself and, you know, uh, learning how to really let go and actually give up your desire to fix them is the only thing that can enable you to really love them. And I think, I mean, it's impossible. It's so hard to well, do. Well, that was a grown-up person, right? An adult relationship? My, well. Well, I don't mean, mean to pry into your mind, but, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to pry. Thank you. Uh, I have a short memory. The, um, uh, what if it were a child? I mean, you were a middle, 60-year-old parent and had a, well, 50-year-old parent and had a 17-year-old child, what would you do? I, 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 I haven't been a parent, but I know that there are some things that have to be true in all circumstances. Um, and obviously, you know, when you're a parent, there's, there are different dynamics that I can't speak to. But um, I just know that when trying to love someone that is in the midst of addiction, you have to, on some level... And I'm not saying let them go uh -huh. to do heroin yeah. alone in the basement. But in order to truly love them and for them to sense it, I think you have, I mean, I don't know how to really verbalize it, but this is what I learned in Al-Anon. And I don't know if anyone else can speak to it as well. Do you want Well, I was just going to um, come alongside what you were saying, uh, particularly in, in a family situation where it is a parent-child relationship, in my experience, um, a lot of the uh, turmoil that 
is behind the symptoms of addiction are related to family dynamics, are related to um, codependency or um, dynamics that you spoke about, you know, same-sex parent-child tension or replacing the opposite parent, those sorts of things where parent-child roles are reversed. So, um, you know, the parent uh, going into counseling themselves um, to understand, um, you know, dynamics in their own uh, relationship to their child. And uh, I know I went into counseling because my mother asked me to, and I sort of went not because I wanted to, and that was a helpful thing. So in the, in, I mean, parents, they can't, they have to give up, I agree, you know, the um, ability, uh, the, the, the thought that, that they, it's up to them to, to, to save their child because that will kill you. You can't. Um, so there's a death that happens, and facing, you know, that whole longing to want to save someone when you can't, um, at the same time, you can ask, make a way for them to go, you know, I mean, you know, offer opportunities for, for help for that child. Um, I, so that's a thought. You know, I have a principle to add, or, or at least emphasize, I've probably already made it, that um, this thing about uh, the potency if an intervention is absolutely necessary, as it would be in the case of a heroin addiction, that the intervention has to do with the unconditional nature of the help. This, we are going to help you with this. We're going to see to it that this beast cannot get to you. And whether, I don't know how, uh, do any of you know about this field of how you treat kids who get addicted to, I mean, uh, uh, as a, well, I do know, but the principle is the same. Whether it's a child running around with a knife, um, most of the children in Manhattan Children's Center, uh, well, that's why they were there. They had enough gumption to throw scissors at the teacher. Oh, the sickest ones were home, you know, just passed out or something. But um, a gumption's a bad word there. Uh, let's, don't, let's don't use that. Uh, the <laughs> but the... Um, the way you do it is to say, uh, that isn't, you, I've done it with 12-year-old, very wild boys, to get their hands behind them and say, no, no, this is not good for you, and you're going to stay right here till we get some help with this. You, in other words, you provide the control that is missing. And if um, I don't know about... Uh, I was hoping all of you could inform me about this uh, this case because it's been laid on us very new, and I thought, well, there is there is a challenge. Um, what, how would one exercise this principle if there's no this for that? You know, there is no this for that. But if it calls for being confined outside the parent's home and uh, comp compulsory treatment being given, this is what's going to happen. This is not what we're going to do if you ever do this again. That's the one principle that I want to... Uh, is our time up? Um, we can keep no. going. Another question here. All right. Hi, Dr. Martin. My name is Aaron Zimmerman, and I have three children. Um, my oldest child is five years old. She's a girl, 
And she is a wonderful handful. Um, we have a one-year-old who's just what a good one-year-old should be. We have a three-year-old boy who's very compliant. He'll do almost anything we ask. But our oldest daughter, she wakes up uh, with her breakfast order in mind. Uh, she knows what she wants. She knows what she wants in every meal. She, um, she just would run the show if she could. And she has very strong ideas about how it should be run. And this obviously creates conflict um, and, and a lot of it. And um, what, kind of, uh, what kind of conflict? Could you give us a, a close-up example? Sure. Who says what? Good morning, Abigail. Good morning, Daddy. Can we have cream of wheat today? No, I'm sorry, honey. We only have time for cereal. But I would like cream of wheat. So we eventually get to, well, we don't have time, so, um, you know, would you like to cook it, Abigail? No. Okay, well, I don't have time to cook it, so we'll have cereal. So we navigate through that one. Uh -huh. But then I choose an outfit for her to wear, and she's, no, 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 I want the stripes. Um, and it, th when you begin to put the, um, put a little barrier there, like, no, the stripes yeah. don't go, and you look like yeah. a homeless person. Um, <laughs> Now we're getting down. To you pace. put the barriers there, and her her emotional reaction just increases, and it usually leads to tears on her part and right. yelling, and then sort of yelling from either her mother or me, and it escalates. And I'm not. And I'm. I would love some help to know how to enter in to that alongside her without having power struggle. Right. Right. Uh, well, I'm sure you know that the most immediate help any of us has, whether we're uh, old, old uh, therapists or, or new parents, the most powerful thing you can do while maintaining the, uh, you know, your parental authority is to understand and to express understanding and to reflect how she's feeling. Oh, I know how much you want the cream of wheat this morning. It's, it's so hard not to have what you want when you really want it. I understand. What we're having today is this. And the more, she, the more she just keeps going on, the more you say, I know, I know it's hard not to get what you want. But this is the menu for today. And I think if you're aware that you're the parent, and, and she is the little girl. Um, I wish I had known all these things when I bringing up my own children. It would save me a lot of grief. Um, the um, I didn't know these things. They taught me. The um, uh, but I understand that's a very weak read to lean on all the time. But I do know that it's very possible to understand a child's feeling, even if she bursts into tears and has a temper tantrum. Can, you know, you can hold her and say, oh, I know, it's just, it's just terrible. I don't like it when I don't get what I, I want either. But this is the way it's going to be today, even if you have to pick her up and put her in her coat and take her to school. And about the striped pants and the flowered um, <laughs> hat, you might give uh, yourself a little wiggle room there and pick your battles very carefully because <laughs> you want to, uh, um, one of the best mothers I ever knew, uh, could see her little girl go to school with her coat upside down. You know how they do it first when the, the, the hood ends up over the rump? And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, she could say, well, you know, you almost got it. But she would not. <laughs> and uh, that kind of thing. You don't get into a power struggle if you don't have to. Uh, she's not going to be in a, a, a fashion parade. And... Uh, 
if people um, have a funny reaction, she'll learn over time what goes with what. But I surely wouldn't at an early age get into the battle of what looks right. Uh, anybody want to vote on that? <laughs> I don't know if that's any help. But reflect the feeling before you. Okay. All right. All right. We're stopping. Hi, Dorothy. Uh, thank you again for your time. This is a great privilege to have you here. And well, I I, I'm enough. a new parent, so I devoured your book. Um, and very helpful. So I actually have the opposite question because my default mode with my hippie parents who had very little boundaries was permissiveness. Yes. And you asked about, you, you mentioned permissiveness during your talk. Yes. And you said, if someone would like to ask, please do. So I'm asking. Oh, permissiveness. I would, yeah, well, I'll, permissiveness I'll end up letting... is just, just abandoning a child to her own impulses. Um, now, permissiveness within boundaries of, you know, you don't have to uh, run a military institute to have well-behaved children. They need um, uh, within the, the boundaries of what's acceptable about it to have uh, leeway. But the thing, I can give a piece of advice there since uh, you got to giving advice. You remember when Lucy had a booth next door to um, uh, Charlie Brown? Who was it who had the psychiatric booth? When, uh, Lucy. And one of them put up, I guess it must have been Snoopy, yes, put up a side booth that said, friendly advice, two cents. And <laughs> so we will, I have some uh, uh, advice about, um, uh, oh, now I forgot what I was going to say. It was so good. What, uh, <laughs> oh, where were you? Give me the catch word. Permissiveness. I know, permissiveness, right. Well, permissiveness means, I think, uh, oh, I know what my, my point was. Whatever you do, don't make it an if. If, say, there, I give this example in the book, I think, of, say, there's some little girls having cat fights with each other and pet biting, and they're supposed to go on an outing. And the mentor, whoever it is, said, uh, all right, girls, uh, let's, let's shape it up now. Uh, no more uh, cat fights. But they continue. And, but there's no any, all right, if you all, if you all don't, don't hush this, this fighting, we're going on. The thing is to move swiftly and definitively toward the consequence and say, girls, we just don't have it together today and we're going back home. And then you'll hear the hue and cry, I'll be good. But, uh, it, it works very powerfully. Do I have one more minute to, uh, how many, I thought we were stopping at 2.15. Um, no, that was when the question and answer was beginning. Oh. The, <laughs> I could have said all those other good things I had planned for. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I wanted to say something more about that permissiveness. That oh, the microphone instead of the water bottle. Hold this for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, where were we? Oh, move swiftly with the consequences. Um, I wanted to tell the story, I'm glad I have a little more time, that um, in the children's hospital, now where is she who worked, who knew, told me she knew about Manhattan Psychiatric, who, oh there you are. <laughs> uh, when I first went to Manhattan Children's Center, uh, these little wild things, they never had any parenting, they weren't bad children, it was just that the impulse and the action were all the same thing, they didn't have any discerning it wasn't that I think I'm going to hit that child. It was that the urge to hit and the hit were all the same thing. And uh, they had had nothing but punishment. Um, I went with some books and sat on the floor of the what we called the ward where they lived, the inpatients, and sat on a blanket with some books. 
to see what would happen. And sure enough, somebody came up and said, would you read to me? I was rather surprised. These children had never been read to. And before long, it was like uh, I was a mother hen. And all of these children came uh, with... um, uh, eagerly to get these stories, but they didn't have enough control. And the way I helped them with this, I, I think it was just instinctive. I didn't say, all right, if you don't stop fighting, we'll stop reading. Uh, I said, okay, now your hands are giving you trouble. You sit on them. Now you come over here and sit by me and you hold on to me because your hands are way out of control. And uh, sometimes it was our teeth that were out of control. Your feet are out of control. And... Um, just very swiftly, I said one day, you know, we just don't have enough control for reading. It's all right, and I was not at all punitive about it, uh, like we're going to stop because you can't control yourselves. I just said, it's not, we have to have better control in order to get the story, so we're going to try again tomorrow. Do you know it took those children one day? I think I'm uh, not spreading my attention around. The, uh, this is a big church. I never spoke <laughs> anybody. Uh, but what I did was simply let them see the consequences the very next day. Those children, when there started to be this impulse coming out, would say to each other, sit on your feet. You're not going to read if you don't. Hold on to me. I even, they, children, uh, it's very powerful stuff when, when it is not if. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one of the good things I was going to tell you. Uh-huh. Uh, hello. Oh, you don't have the. Uh... Oh. Yes. Okay. Um, oh. Oh, you had the next question. Hello. <laughs> All right, Kelly. Uh, one of my hearing aids went out, so I'm coming closer. I suppose right. we'll, we'll mediate our conversation okay. through these, right. these things. Well, they can um, hear better. No, they can hear better this way. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I don't. I know that at least one of. Uh, our, of our friends here, uh, in addition to myself, is a teacher, mm-hmm. and I'm rest- and I'm I'm wondering how this movement away from uh, conditional mm-hmm. relationships yeah. uh, applies in the context of um, of teaching, or as I'm thinking back to uh, some things from tennis practice the day the day before I left, and you know, and and how all of this might play out, particularly with older, uh, with, with older children, yes. uh, teenage, teenage boys in this case, and, and relationships such as, such as these. Because the traditional model is yes. if you are late to practice, yes. you will not play tomorrow. Right. I'm sorry, that's life. Could you flesh these out perhaps? Well, now they won't be able to hear what you're saying. But you could use the same uh, principle and before the season starts or what, just set out the regulations a bit, you know, and say, I do want to make it clear that um, lateness is not acceptable. And uh, when, you come, uh, when you come late, you will find that uh, you, you can't, is, is that doable in that situation? Because anytime you get into if, you're on weak territory. Uh, I would simply lay it out in the first place that uh, tell them that lateness is not accepted. You know, some teachers are able to get away with that and say late papers are not accepted. And <laughs> they, uh, uh, the students quickly learn which ones they can manipulate and which ones they... 
there must be some way to apply the principle, but, but because if you tell them ahead of time, um, I know when uh, somebody, some supervisor taught me once what to do about fees when people didn't pay them. Uh, and I wasn't, she taught me so well. She said, you don't let that develop. You make it clear that you give a bill at a certain time. You expect a check to be handed to you on the following session. And she was a little very, very strict. But I did learn the principle you, that you have to spell it out ahead of time. This is what I This is what's expected here, and this is the way it will be. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, one fo one follow up in the next. Oh, right, thanks. Um, Is it more than a, is that not, or is your distinction more than a semantic one? In that laying out ahead of, laying it out ahead of time still, on some level, feels like if you are late, you shall not play, or something of the sort? Like laying, uh, laying out the rules of the game. When you teach people how to play uh, chess, you're just simply taking, you know, this is the way it works. And uh, uh, one time when I thought I had won my third chess game, I had only played chess three times with a little boy. I think it was the nicest moment he ever had. I paraded my, what is the fellow who goes sideways? Uh, you know, uh, goes diagonal, what is he? Bishop? No, it's the one that jumps. The knight, right. <laughs> you can see I didn't, I didn't get very far. The <laughs> well, I thought I had won the game. I, I knew exactly how to make that L, and I, I jumped uh, over in front of the king and said, check. And <laughs> he laughed and said, that is very funny. <laughs> so I, I guess that's about it. But the principles of the game are the principles of the game. And, you know, that, uh, in baseball, anybody knows and doesn't have to be told again the three strikes is out, and, you know, the four balls are... Am I just being dense to your question, or...? No. Uh-huh. But if you don't say it ahead of time, for instance, that business, I don't know why I brought up fees and therapy, but uh, if you don't make the principles clear at the beginning, later you're being nasty and ugly, and um, uh, if you just you need to lay out what the, the so I think that you know coming to practice late is not acceptable and and make it stick from the very first time uh, that's what I does anybody object is this overly simplistic well what will work or what's powerful I think people love and respect you more if, if you, that is a very respectful position. You know, the, like those little children in the hospital, I think they felt very respected that um, they weren't bad. It's it just, uh, it's a, it is, I guess I had wanted to say that this is the most powerful force in the world. One of the things that I had, one of those delicious goodies I didn't um, give you, uh, was so those I haven't read the whole uh, uh, Dante uh, uh, Divine Comedy or anything like that, but at the end of it, he talks about the love that moves the sun and the other stars, 
And that's the kind of love we're talking about. It is the most powerful force in the world. And, uh, but it has to be love that is not based on conditions. But that doesn't mean you don't move in with force and help. Like the child with the heroin, you would move in with force. So, you know, this is, this is terrible for you. We're going to do everything we can to protect you from this beast. And you're not going to like it, but this is, and we love you. And, but this is the way it's going to be now. Okay, somebody else? Well, I'm, I've been sitting here, you, um, thinking about whether or not my question is just a rehash of Kelly's second question. Everybody um, wants it again and again anyway. Hmm? So if you feel that you've already answered this, please feel free to say so and move on. Um, my question is, it, I, I'm hearing a little bit that um, you're talking not so much about um, removing the if-then quality of a relationship, but making it not an impediment to having a relationship. Say so a little bit more. When you gave the example of the children in your reading group, yeah. um, you didn't tell them verbally that if they were too rowdy, you wouldn't read, but you let them figure that out on their own. So the if was implicit rather than explicit, right? Well, that's interesting that it was, um, was there an if? I suppose the, the difference between if and what consequences are. Um, how would we put that? Does anybody have a contribution to that? Because it's a very good question. All right. Aaron, take mine. Um, we, um, th this is something that we've tr we try and often fail to in our parenting, but we try to let natural consequences do the teaching as opposed to making it us against the child, that's judging yeah, their performance and then meeting yeah. out reward or punishment based on that. So we'll say at the beginning of dinner, we'll be happy to give dessert to anyone that finishes their dinner. Mm -hmm. So that, that, it, now that's, that's it is, very it, there is, uh, there is a semantic <laughs> difference, but there's also a qualitative difference. Mm -hmm. We haven't set up sort of like an if you do this and we'll decide, <laughs> you know, uh, you may reject this idea, but it works in practice because you've, um, you, you've created, there's not a you against them. You, I mean, it's like if you say, if you, if you're late for the train, you'll miss it. That's an if then thing. But, you know, if you're late for the train, you'll miss it. So we're sort of letting, hoping the consequences will do the teaching as opposed to me forcing it on you. That's a very interesting formulation. We'd be happy to get dessert for anybody who's finished his dinner. That would never have occurred to me. Does anybody have a comment on that? Well, yeah. Once I <laughs> um, um, so I'm all for it. But it seems like what we're doing is preserving quality of relationship by hiding the if-then, which I'm all about, <laughs> rather than actually removing the if-then quality of the thing. You're saying it's still conditional in nature in some way. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of first use. Right. What is this word? I don't and know. I'm sure everybody on the internet knows exactly what that means. <laughs> I'm lost. Explain it to me. Oh, great. Um, 
the first use of the law is the so-called, um, I forget, yeah, the one that, <laughs> that, 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 that you, you stop at a red light so you don't get hit. It's not that it's affecting your relationship with God or your relationships. It's just sort of good practice rather than sort of an overarching, you know, like you won't ruin your relationship with your child if you sort of hide the conditionality of their qualifying for their pudding. Um, but, qualifying for their yeah. pudding, that's cute. Uh, right. Uh, so we had a couple of but contributions over here. Yeah. I think the if then is typically used in a in a power play and a manipulation and a, I'm in control here and I'll decide. Whereas saying, oh, well, it looks like we as a group are not able to control ourselves, so we'll read tomorrow and see how we do, makes it like you're on the same team and this just isn't working. Whereas the if then is you're not doing this right. So we're going to wait until you do what I want you to do. So threat versus agreement. That's what I'm seeing anyway. Uh, I, I believe this gentleman had I confess I'm still stuck back on Aaron's first question. I was intrigued that he said to his daughter, yes. we don't have time. Uh-huh which expressed, I believe, your need as well as your daughter's. And I, I just, I think we went... <laughs> and so that really is a relationship because you've expressed, you've taken into account her need and you've expressed your need. And I find that intriguing as I look to dealing with God in the question I think overarching here, which is this grace question. And I find just instructive here this question of trying to pay attention to who God is. This if question I think only addresses, it makes ultimately important the daughter without taking... I just was intrigued. I'm stuck on your answer because I think it's a different thing. It was you expressed your need and, and, and that in there, and then you had to deal with both of those needs. That is interesting. One, uh, I'm, I think I understand what you're getting at, though I may be a little not absolutely clear, though I, I'm sure this time business does involve everybody and everybody's needs. The, that, But I was going to give, uh, again, a little friendly advice. Making too many explanations to children about why it has to be a certain way can really get you in trouble uh, because they're very quick. Uh, if you give them the rope uh, to play with it, you know. Uh, yes, well, I, I think... Uh, it is a principle that is a good principle in many circumstances, and perhaps in this one, that to state things um, without giving too many reasons, just uh, that's the way that it is the, this, this morning. I know how much you want it, and um, uh, it's hard not to get something you want when you want it very badly. Uh, but, stick with, but this is going to be this way today. I wouldn't go into too much... Um, explanations with the children because it gets too much material in the in the room and then you're fighting over a lot of things 
but the, the parental authority, I think, is important. It's a question of what the parental authority does, uh, how the parent, the strong parent, not a weak parent, uh, who can, um, uh, well, deliver this kind of love, okay? Okay, I'm I, okay. Hello, um, and I'm hoping this is a, this doesn't muddle the situation more, but I think it kind of goes, I'm struggling with a little bit of this, in the idea of an agreement, because it sounds like the recommendation to kind of lay out the rules beforehand, the idea, the illustration of the game of chess, mm -hmm. that we're all agreeing to play the same game. Mm -hmm. But I'm born into my family and don't have that choice. When I'm addicted to heroin, I no longer have any control over my world, mm -hmm. and I haven't agreed to play the game. Mm -hmm. And so for me or my parent, for me over my child or my parent over me, to have the authority that can speak into that situation, where does that authority come from if the other person, the other party, isn't willing to agree to receive it? Because... It sounds like a very good question. I'm too exhausted even to understand it. <laughs> you speak to good it. Question. Okay, uh, Dorothy, thank you enormously for this. Um, uh, with, and and uh, um, we do pay the, the, the slight uh, penalty of a vast space uh, here, and that affects the, um, the auditory side of life. But I wanted to, what Aaron, what you all are, 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 are talking about, in, in my opinion, is a first and second use of the law in Lutheran terms. Yeah, I know that, and I, 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 there's a place waiting for you. Um, what, you. You raise children on the basis of the first use of the law, which is to say, if you uh, don't, um, if, if, uh, if you go near water, you're going to drown, so we watch you 24-7. Uh, if you drink that, you will die. Therefore, you cannot under any circumstances drink it. That's the first use of the law in traditional Lutheran theology. And we raise little children according to the first use of the law. And that's what Aaron is talking about. And that's what you're talking about. When it becomes prohibitory or involves a value judgment on the child, what is commonly today called shaming, that's the word, you then have the second use of the law, which is about right and wrong. And when you freight the relationship with the child on a right or wrong basis, you cripple, paralyze, retard, and destroy the happiness of the person, as these children are that you've talked about. So as far as I'm concerned, this discussion is simply about first and second use. I do not bring the children up with a value judgment. But if they go into the water just after they've eaten, they're going to get spanked. I just thought I'd put that in unequivocal terms. <laughs> And uh, so what you do is you have a form of the law, and I'm thinking Lutheran theological Wittenberg, you have a form of the law which exists without a moral judgment. A form of the law which exists without moral judgment. But as soon as moral judgment comes into the play, you have neurotic children. And that's, you're talking about moral judgment or quid pro quo or this for that. And you're saying that we, as Christians, have a different approach. Give her one final word. And then... <laughs>
Okay, Dorothy, we have one final word from you, and then we're going to let her rest, and we can sit here and continue the conversation, but informally. I've said what I have to say, and I loved, I loved being here with all of you, and I do feel very privileged to be a part of it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.